Oh, hi, Mark. I knew it was coming, and yet I was not emotionally prepared. (laughs) Something that has been haunting me my whole life. Every time someone says it, they think they're so clever. I don't say it thinking you've never heard it before. I'm saying it for me. Yeah, you're saying it also because you know it makes me annoyed. Yeah, of course. It's just like every time someone thinks they've hit on something new when they call me Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. I mean, it's also like, funny. Yeah, but it's also like, I, I hate to break it to you, I have been called that since, like, first grade swim lessons. It was very funny, just like, when we watched this movie, just seeing you, like, bristle a little bit every time, like, hi Mark or oh hi Mark was said. Yeah, I don't love that his name is Mark in this movie. I have to say. So Greg Sestero, who plays Mark, posited that the character was supposed to be named Matt in honor of Matt Damon, but that Tommy misheard his name and thought his name was Mark Damon. I mean, that makes sense. I fully believe that. Honestly, you could tell me anything about Johnny Wiseau and I would believe it. That said, like, I feel like Oh Hi Matt or whatever would have less sticking power because Matt is just like enough of a more common name that it wouldn't register in the same way yeah that makes a lot of sense like something about the r sound i think is what really rounds it out with the way he pronounces r's yeah matt i feel like he would just swallow yeah wow what a man so i mentioned that we watched this movie together i think we have only seen this movie together unless you've been watching it casually without me I mean, I do own it on DVD, but I have never watched it without you there. Yeah. And two days ago, we went and we saw this movie at the E Street Cinema at midnight. A wonderful experience. A thrilling time. around, great time. I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but just to kick off our episode, I wanted to know, like, do you have other great midnight movie experiences? Well, so when I was in high school, which is, I think, peak age of midnight premiere... Yeah, like the tail end of the Potter years. Right. I was in high school for the Potter years, but in Singapore, midnight premieres happen at noon because (laughs) of the 12-hour time followed. They followed U.S. midnight. Basically, just because that was when Warner Brothers, I guess, around the midnight Eastern or Pacific time is when they gave the go-ahead to show movies, or Singapore just decided to do noon, but it was like... A noon showing, usually, was the premiere of Harry Potter on a Saturday. That's so weird. So you'd, like, dress up and go at noon on a Saturday, because that is midnight on Eastern Time U.S. I, like, obviously, like, when I travel or whatever, I get it. But, like, in terms of big events, I cannot fathom time difference. Like, the fact that the Super Bowl is, like, very much a mid-afternoon event on the West Coast, or, like, that the Oscars take place at 5 p.m., I just can't wrap my head around it. I know. When someone pointed out that these after parties for the Oscars are not starting at 1 a.m., they are starting at 9 p.m., it really put everything into perspective. It did help me to understand why people go to those parties. Yes. In high school, the Super Bowl was like a morning affair. Dads would get up and go to the American Club bar and watch the Super Bowl at like 6 a.m. and get shit-faced before work. Honestly, like, once I learned about that, I was like, we should move the Super Bowl earlier in the day. That's the way to do it. The game is too long to be the last thing you do, like, if you're just sitting around deep into the night. But as, like, an afternoon thing that you can, like, be at a barbecue and, like, wander in and out and, like, be hanging out in the sunlight. That's the way to do it. Yeah, that sounds much more enjoyable. 
There's something about like it's fully dark outside and you're just getting into the second quarter that doesn't work for me. Well, it doesn't help that they also put it in February. Well, yeah. But in terms of actually watching a movie at midnight, my main point of reference is going to the Rocky Horror Show, also at E Street, the home of the midnight movie in the D.C. area. And, I mean, it was full classic Rocky Horror. There's a whole production that they do. It was a very enjoyable time. Going your first time is always so uncomfortable. There was audience participation. I didn't love it. But all around, I had a blast. The performers at E Street were very good. The ones who act along with the movie. You know they do it a lot and rehearse. <laughs> I believe it. But I have I don't know if I've ever done an actual midnight premiere, just the midnight Rocky Horror. And we this is our second time doing a midnight showing of The Room. Yeah, I have done many midnight premieres. And really only stopped, well, I stopped uh, with The Force Awakens. Because there was that window around, like, 2015, where they were still doing, like, a several, like, 12, 1201, whatever showings, but had also started allowing stuff to start at, like, 7 p.m. So they were trying to satisfy both groups. And this was my first year teaching, and I got some of the people I was living with who were also teachers, and I was like, all right, we got to go see Force Awakens opening night. And they were like, yeah. And so then I, like, pull up Fandango. I'm buying our tickets for midnight because I'm like, midnight is the real premiere. And someone looks over my shoulder and says, wait a minute, we can go at nine? We have to go to school tomorrow. That transition period you do in your head, you're like, midnight is the real premiere. But also, why? Well, it's the thing of like, there is an energy to a premiere crowd that is kind of undeniable. And I think at the time, I was worried that like a 7 or a 9 p.m. showing would just be like a bunch of people at the movies, whereas midnight would still be the lunatics who insisted on going at midnight. Yeah, I guess the... Big switch, too, was the switch from wanting to see it in the right crowd to avoiding spoilers online, which I think was probably the primary drive of people trying to go as early as possible. Yeah, so so we saw Force Awakens at 9 o'clock, and I have not been back to a midnight, like a true midnight premiere since. I mean, I don't know. Do you think the vibe is still there? Uh, Honestly, I don't know. I think they're probably less crowded, in part because, like you were saying in part, like, spoiler-phobic culture, but also just, like, it's been normalized over the last seven years, so people are like, yeah, Thursday evening is the premiere. I saw, like, a 5.30 screening of Spider-Man in a packed and energized theater. Yeah, I don't know if I missed the midnight premiere. I'm not a late-night man. I will say, we saw The Room together in, weirdly, the hottest theater I have ever been in my in my life. A couple nights ago? Were you not hot in there? I was, I did not notice how hot it was. I was sweltering. I mean, I think I, like, drank past the point of feeling hot, where I was now into just being kind of drunk. And I think all three of us, because we were there with our friend Rachel, were just kind of, like, really vibing for, like, the first 45 minutes, and then we're like, wait a minute, we're not yet halfway through this movie. Well, I mean, when you get to the third sex scene at the minute mark of 29, you really are, like... Good lord, this movie is still going. Yeah. There's something thrilling about it from the start, and then you're like, it's not really going to go anywhere beyond this. Yeah. I did make a joke that landed, and that was about the, like, at an hour 15, so I still had some energy left in me. That was fun. I feel like we had a decent, rowdy crowd of, like, calling stuff out. 
Yeah, there were like three people that actually knew the rules, but then there was one woman who clearly had no idea what she was getting herself into and was just reacting so strongly to everything on screen. Which is I also great. Her. Yeah. yeah. She was just like, what is happening? By the third sex scene, she really just lost it. There was another dude who like was full Pierce watching Kick Puncher and still thinks that saying stuff is gay is funny. Yeah. There's always going to be that person. It's just like, it's 2022, man. They probably saw it first in like 2012 when everyone was making those jokes and didn't realize that everyone else has moved past it. Yeah. Um, My first midnight movie was Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest. That doesn't surprise me at all. I saw Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End at midnight the night before my last day of eighth grade. And then I saw Pirates of the Caribbean uh, on Stranger Tides. That's the fourth one at midnight the night before my last day of high school. Is On Stranger Tides the one with Penelope Cruz? Yes. Like Blackbeard? Um, Yes, Blackbeard is in that one. Okay. I have seen that one. That was the one where they were just like, everyone else is gone. We just have Johnny Depp. Yes. I mean, some of the others, like Jeffrey Rush is back with a peg leg. Mr. Gibbs is like a much expanded role. I saw it once in theaters and thought it was fine and have never revisited it. Yeah, that's about how I am with that one. I didn't feel the need. There was a mermaid. I have not seen Dead Men Tell No Tales in which Javier Bardem plays Captain Salazar. I love that they went from Penelope Cruz to Javier Bardem. Yeah. They couldn't put him in the same movie. I wish. Have they ever acted in the same movie? Probably, right? Probably. They are both in Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Oh. That movie. They met in Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Okay. Oh, and that is a Woody Allen movie. I did remember that. Yes. It looks like they have also both been in some Spanish movies together. Yeah. Other midnight movies I saw, I definitely saw Harry Potter's 6, 7, and 7 again at midnight, and I maybe saw 5 at midnight. Um, I saw Age of Ultron, Iron Man 3, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. I'm pretty sure I saw Ender's Game at midnight. Now, that one was a choice. <laughs> that was, let me tell you, that was not a crowded midnight screening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the critics on that one, I remember coming out before the movie came out. I don't think there was a lot of hype train for Ender's Game. The hype train was me and a dude that I worked with. Yeah, because I guess by the age I would be allowed to start going to midnight screenings in high school. I was in Singapore where they weren't doing them. And then when I got back to the States, they were already on the tail end. So I really just missed Midnight Movie Mania. Except for events. Did we not see the desolation of smog at midnight? Was that like 8 o'clock the next day? I'm assuming it was not, because I don't even know if I saw, no, was The Desolation of Smog the second one? That's the second one. Okay, so I did watch that one, but I don't think I would have been hyped enough after the first one to have gone to a midnight screening, (laughs) and I haven't even seen The Battle of Five Armies. No, nobody has. The biggest mistake that series made was thinking people care about The Battle of Five Armies, which Tolkien knew when he just had (laughs) Bilbo have a concussion and pass out through all of it. It's the kind of thing that, like, when I first read the book in, like, fourth grade, I was like, that sounds really cool. But whatever I was imagining was always going to be more interesting. It's like a a monster in a monster movie. Like, whatever I was imagining is always going to be more interesting than showing a battle whose outcome does not really matter. Right. Well, I am excited for, speaking of Lord of the Rings, very excited for the Amazon show. I enjoyed Wheel of Time, so I'm hoping this one will be good, too. 
I'm going to force Nick to watch it with me like I did with Wheel of Time, where he eventually got really on board. That's lovely. I think it was like, at some point in episode two, something clicked, and he was just like, all right, I'm fully on board now. And then episode seven and eight, actually like good, well-directed, well-crafted TV. No longer just fun TV. (laughs) Episodes seven and eight. Yeah. So the first six are like fun, silly, kind of campy entertaining tv shows and then you get to like the end of seven and episode eight and they switch to actually like good tv okay so i'm hoping they keep that momentum going forward if you haven't watched it i actually think you would enjoy it will okay yeah i just uh i'm still watching the sopranos yeah rosamund pike is going like she's going hard as moraine the lead character uh anyway the room (laughs) the room let's Let's get underway. <laughs> I just can't wait to give this a 10 out of 10. It's like, how do you talk about The Room anymore? I know. It feels like we've all been talking about it for 15 years and none of us has cracked it. Yeah. And like, It's like either very simple or impenetrable. And we'll get into that on this episode of We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. How did this movie cost $6 million? Well, I mean, I think the two cameras was a big part of that. They played a role. Also, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot, which it certainly is, or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at possibly the worst movie ever made, Tommy Wiseau's romantic drama, The Room. As we have... Previously stated, we have seen The Room three times now. Once on a DVD and twice at midnight screenings. And I just... I feel like we're going to bring nothing new to the history of The Room in terms of cracking the case. I feel like, though, every time I see it, new secrets of The Room unfold before me. That is true. But I'm very excited to get into uh, how Tommy Wiseau views women. (laughs) (laughs) What?! (laughs) and the romantic plotline of this bizarre movie. Mark, which room is the titular room? I assume the living room. Almost everything happens in that room where no one closes a door. And there's also no door between that and the bedroom, just stairs, so technically it could all be one room. Yeah, it's like like one of those high-ceiling apartments. Right, and I mean, the only other places he goes are the flower store, one of the best God, moments. The, the flower store scene where Tommy lurches into this store, announces that he'd like a dozen roses, pets a cat, and walks out, and the entire scene is dubbed. <laughs> is a perfect distillation of this incomprehensible movie. Because it's not a scene that you need. He can just no. walk in with flowers, and the audience will understand this sequence of events. The scene itself is horrible. They had to dub the whole thing. and. There are other sequences that are not there that need to be there for the movie to make sense. I think, honestly, I think the flower scene might be one of my favorites. Because it's it's so fast, too. He walks in, at the door, starts ordering a dozen roses. She hands them to him. No money is exchanged. Then he pets the dog. Hi, buddy! And leaves. I assume he has a tab. Yeah, I mean, he does seem to buy flowers a lot. Yeah. You know... When watching this, it is hard to avoid comparisons to Birdemic. 
it's impossible to avoid comparisons to Birdemic, especially like in terms of music. Like You Are My Rose, the sex song from this movie. I got nothing to say against it, except that it is not hanging out with my family from Birdemic. That is the greatest original song in a bad movie. I mean, part of the fact of it is the performance of hanging out with my family in Birdemic, where it's just the two of them in this like Irish bar as one guy <laughs> sings his song that may or may not be about wanting to kiss his relatives. Oh my god. Hanging out. Hanging, hanging out. out. With the family. The fact that I, I still know that. I haven't seen Birdemic in years. Oh my god. I think another weird similarity that underpins both of these movies and is a big part of it is their weird belief that they are solving a world issue. I mean, Birdemic thinks that it's addressing like the main crisis of the day. The room is more like, I mean, Tommy compared Tommy Wiseau, who wrote, directed, and produced and stars in it, like he thinks this is like a Tennessee Williams thing. Right. But it's to teach us to be nice to each other. Yes, that's true. And that's what's tragic is that Johnny is the nicest person. He cares about his friends. He cares about his girl. He cares about Denny. And all these people betray him. Right. Because they're all evil, I guess? Well, Denny just gets wrapped up in drugs somehow. With Jack R. No, Chris R. Chris R. The fact that the drug dealer in this movie is a tall white dude named Chris R, it it just feels like you're in sixth grade and you have to distinguish from Chris P. Denny is maybe the most fascinating part of this movie. Denny is either 13 or 30. Well, he's canonically established as 18 because he's in college, but he acts like he's nine. It's not clear that Denny knows what sex is, for example, but... It is also clear that he is in deep with, like, a coke dealer. I love this movie. Denny, we are told, is an orphan that Tommy has all but adopted. He's paying for his college, even though he didn't get the promotion. And clearly is, like, the main emotional support in Denny's life as well. Uh, Denny has, like, a puppy dog crush on Johnny's girl, Lisa. And he gets wrapped up in drug dealing. Yeah, it's so weird. In a, in a sequence that is never followed up on. You no. come onto a rooftop and Chris R, whose name is hyphenated in the credits. It's Chris hyphen R, which makes me think that it's less of like a last name thing and more of like he's from Krypton, like Kalel and Jarrell. Chris R. He's Chris R of the planet Krypton. And he is like holding a gun to Denny's head being like, you got to get me that money. And then Johnny and Mark beat Chris R up say they're taking him to the police station, are back within two minutes, and then he is never mentioned again. I just love that Claudette is there for that scene, too. Just shouting. The magnificence of the room is that it introduces plot threads that it has no interest in. Characters will show up without explanation. Like, things will just come and go. It feels like you are watching stream of consciousness filmmaking like my friends and I were doing in middle school, except those movies had more coherent plots. Yeah, and they did not have $6 million behind them. Right. One of my favorite examples of this is that late in the movie, there's this character, Steven, who shows up. He is not named in the dialogue. He is never introduced. He's just suddenly there and is, like, interrogating Lisa about her infidelity. In the script, that was supposed to be Peter, who we had met, But the actor had told production he was only available for a certain number of days. They did not shoot all of his scenes in time. So Tommy just 
made up a new character that he didn't bother to give any background for. That makes so much more sense. Yeah, I feel like I finally cracked that part of the movie. Now I understand it. It doesn't make sense, but, if but I was, understand it. If there was a, like, not even competent, but, like, a slightly more competent person, they would have just introduced the character. Like, yeah. added in a line saying, oh, this is Steven, another one of Lisa's friends. But nope, <laughs> he just <laughs> shows up and we're supposed to have some kind of relationship with him. I mean, that's the thing, like, that's what's funny about this movie. According to Greg Sestero, who plays Mark and wrote the book The Disaster Artist about the making of the movie and which the movie The Disaster Artist is based on, he claims the script included the revelation that Johnny is a vampire. And that oh my God. Tommy Wiseau tasked production with figuring out a way to show Johnny's car flying over San Francisco to illustrate that he is a vampire. I will say, this movie loves San Francisco. Well, Tommy learned that establishing shots are good, and he really wanted to make sure that he followed that instruction. If you removed all of the plot points, you'd still have about 20 minutes of usable b-roll for a san francisco tourism ad you could start a belfast remake with footage from this movie because it's not terribly shot the establishing shots no you pan one way across the golden gate bridge and then you pan the other way across the golden gate bridge yeah putting those back to back was probably a mistake we mentioned earlier that this movie somehow cost six million dollars which is crazy because it does look like it could have been made for less than one Less than one dollar? I meant less than one million. <laughs> I know. <laughs> You're right that one infamous reason that they get a lot of laughs out of in the Disaster Artist movie is that they built a special rig to be able to shoot every scene simultaneously on 35 millimeter and on digital. It doesn't make sense. I don't, there's no logic because you don't want to mix them. Well, they don't. Like, there are no shots in the movie that are on digital. It's all the film. So what was the point? I... I know I will never understand. Tommy's unknowable. like, But yeah, I mean, so on top of that, he bought all of the equipment rather than renting it, which is the norm. They built all of the sets instead of using like any location shoots. And they also like lost a lot of time because he, Tommy famously like could not remember his lines and had to do dozens of takes, which means that you're paying people for more days. And Tommy claims that they had to reshoot a lot because actors kept quitting. I wonder why. The weird thing, too, is, like, the other mystery of this has always been, like, where that financing came from. Like, where did this $6 million come from? Especially because he's just a guy who was born in New Orleans. All right, he's a normal guy. Why, so, he deliberately keeps his backstory mysterious. He has claimed to be from New Orleans. His accent is much weirder than that. He claimed that he made his money importing Korean leather jackets and developing L.A. real estate. Greg Sestero has always said that he's pretty sure Tommy is just independently wealthy somehow, like family money. And a lot of crew members theorized that it might have been a money laundering scheme. Which I don't really think, because this is so clearly a passion project. I think it's not money laundering. Another theory I've read is that it's like, ill-gotten post-Cold War fall of the USSR money. I I have heard that as like, post-Yugoslavia. Or yeah, because some people say Poland... As a potential country of origin, somewhere in the former Yugoslavia region. It's weird how mysterious this guy has managed to be in the 21st century. But part of it is, like, he doesn't stick to a particular lie. Like, 
it's always a slightly different thing. So you can't like track down one thing that he said. You're chasing a dozen different leads. I mean, yeah. And it's... also that he'll just leave. Like there's this marvelous AV club interview. Oh, from, like, I already have it pulled up <laughs> to share with you to share on social media. Oh, please send it to me. Where like mid interview for almost no reason, he just gets angry and storms out. I genuinely can't remember what the reason was. That was when he had that TV show premiering. Yes, Neighbors, as it's called. Which I think also starred him. Um, yes. I don't actually remember for sure. I just texted you the link. I assume he did. The first line is, AV Club, I enjoyed the Neighbors, Tommy Wiseau. Which part, if I may ask? That's a dude who's been lied to before. He like yes. He knows. <laughs> oh, you liked it? What did you like about it? You know what I had totally forgotten about the Twonderwear at the beginning? I had fully forgotten about that. Yeah, so the thing is, like, these midnight screenings happen with the blessing of Tommy Wiseau. and Well, because they're making him so much money. Right. Like, the room has more than turned a profit at this point. Like, it is now a financial success because of first DVD sales and then midnight screenings. So the only commercials beforehand are commercials for Tommy Wiseau stuff. There's an ad for Tommy Wiseau underwear. Which I don't think exists. I don't know. Did you look it up? I tried, and all you get is the YouTube video of that clip. Yeah. I mean, it probably happened and failed. I mean, there's a there's a tweet from Tommy in 2018 called TW Underwear, sunglasses, smiling emoji, it feels good, and a link to TommyWiseau.com, which I'm oh, not wait, following. It does exist. It does exist, yes. On his website, you can buy Tommy Wiseau underwear. And yeah. it's also only six dollars. It's not expensive. It's not expensive. Interesting. Now, the other interesting thing looking at Tommy's website is that he's got merch playing on room lines. He's got a You're Tearing Me Apart shirt. He's got an Ohio mark. And that's the other wrinkle with it is how much Tommy is in on the joke, which no one is really able to crack. Because this movie is not a comedy. It is very clearly played straight he was definitely not in on the joke when the movie was made right and in the years since then it's been hard to get a read of exactly where he comes down on it because he will be pretty defensive about it in interviews but he also does stuff like when we saw this screening it started with this absolutely hysterical video (laughs) that was basically screw the haters and it was just like full text stuff of like tommy didn't know what he was doing shame on you and God, I forgot a about waste that of money. Too. Shame on you. And every time it said shame on you, there'd be like footage of like an explosion going off to like really shame on you. And it's like, this is clearly a guy who is annoyed that this movie has become a punching bag. But he also sees a money making opportunity. Right. I genuinely don't know what he thinks at this point. But also, he is one of the most incomprehensible people to have ever lived. Yeah, he's he's a baffling man. His first version of The Room was as a play which he said he wrote after seeing The Talented Mr. Ripley, starring Mark Damon. (laughs) And he then adapted that into a 540-page novel. Yikes. And he could not sell the novel, and at that point he then turned it into a screenplay, which he self-produced. Made the whole movie for $6 million, he submitted it to Paramount, and they rejected it within 24 hours. I mean... I don't think you would need to get past the beginning to know to get rid of it. Yeah. So they made it. He booked two theaters in L.A. and and held screenings. And it really became famous because Tommy Wiseau bought this billboard that he paid for for five years. You've seen the billboard, right, Mark? 
I'm pretty sure I have. I'll drop a link in the chat too. But it's the billboard with the poster that the movie is most famous for now of like Tommy head oriented down, but eyes straight out in black and white. It looks kind of like a horror movie poster if you designed it in word art. It looks like a mugshot is really what it looks like. So that billboard sort of became a local landmark. It did a lot to get curious people to go to the website, buy the movie, and it became more and more of this cold object to the point that like a lot of celebrities would like host comedy screenings and it became the like midnight movie staple that we know. One thing I learned that I didn't realize was there is a more normal like mid 2000s poster for the room that Tommy saw as the official poster, but he used the like mugshot one because it was more attention grabbing. He's not dumb. Yeah. So I'm sending it to you. I couldn't find like an HD version of it, but it's, you know, heads floating over an orange image of the Golden Gate Bridge with the tagline, can you really trust anyone? Now, this is a good poster. I love how clearly whatever like Photoshop equivalent Tommy used couldn't quite tell the difference between his hair and the negative space around him. So he's just got this kind of like circular darkness around his head. This is probably MS Paint, the smart lasso feature. And the movie became, like, uh, beloved on the internet. They had the screenings. And also, like, you know, Greg Sestero wrote this book, and the, that book got turned into a movie where it... Have you seen The Disaster Artist? I have not watched it yet. I've been meaning to. I wanted to wait until I saw The Room, and then when I saw The Room, The Disaster Artist had kind of faded from cultural memory, and then I forgot about it. It's pretty good. I saw it in theaters, and uh, I watched it with my fiancé, like, a year ago. It's a fun time. It is a movie that makes you question... Did they reshoot The Room in its entirety? There's not that much of The Room. Yeah. It seems like they might have. It's pretty great. But my favorite, like, room-adjacent thing, besides, like, the video game that got made about it, it's a Flash animation game, but, like, a lot of weird stuff, is that in July 2015, someone submitted the plot of The Room to Ask Amy. (laughs) I love that person. So I just want to read it to you as it's framed here, and I'll read you Amy's response. The thing was later updated to say, people have pointed out that this is the film The Room. But okay. Dear Amy, I have a serious problem with my future wife. She has not been faithful to me. I recently overheard her talking to her friend about how she was unfaithful to me. When I confronted her, all that she said was that she couldn't talk right now. I feel like I have to record everything in my own house just to learn the truth. To make things even more stressful is the fact that she recently told a couple of people that I hit her. But it's not true. I did not hit her. (laughs) I'm not sure why she has been acting like this lately. She did just find out her mother has breast cancer, and that might be playing a role in her behavior. We still always find time to make love, so I don't know why she would go out seeking it from someone else. I just can't believe she would do this to me. I love her so much, she is my everything, and I don't know that I could go on without her. She's tearing me apart. What should I do? That is a really well-written post. So the reply is, uh, the first thing you should do is not get married. Your fiancé's behavior and your response are the very essence of dysfunction. If you are correct and she is stepping out on you, this is a huge problem. Your declaration that you feel like you have to record everything just to learn the truth is chilling. Her counter-accusation that you hit her is potentially very dangerous for you. Because of an escalation in behavior I sense in both of you, and the seemingly toxic connection between the two of you, it would be wisest for you to separate. Seek the support of close friends, family, and a professional counselor to help you deal with this loss and change. Which is easy for you to say, Amy, you know, oh, hang out with friends and family. But as the movie tagline says, 
can you really trust anyone? Well, no, because the person he turned to for comfort is the one sleeping with his soon-to-be wife. Yeah. I don't think they use the word fiancé ever in this movie. It is only future wife wife and future husband. Yeah. Incredible. The room kind of has to be seen to be believed, and I would encourage people to do it even if you just watch, like, the first 30 minutes. That'll get you most of it. It gets you the weird sex scenes. It gets you Chris R. It gets you Lisa as, like, the most unreasonable person on the planet. You get to meet Claudette. I think the only thing you miss is the flower shop scene. Right. I'd go through, like, at least 45 minutes. But yeah, you do not have to sit through all of the room to get a sense of, like, why it has become this object of fascination. I also would recommend doing this with friends and trying to recreate the atmosphere of a midnight screening if you can't make it to one. What a weird movie. And yeah, I mentioned that, like, this movie is clearly autobiographical, right? Not literally, but, like, this movie is clearly a hit job on, like, a specific woman that Tommy knew. Yeah, a woman cheated on him and then he wrote this movie. Should we talk about the romance? Yeah, oh my god, we should talk about... uh, Who is truly one of the worst people in film history? You're talking about Lisa? Yeah, she is out of the box in this movie. But also, you have to kind of think of, like, look, if Lisa doesn't want to marry Johnny, she shouldn't. And it's weird that everyone is so mean to her about that, where her mom's like, oh, you're going to not marry Johnny? Well, you can't do anything yourself, so I guess you'll just die. Yeah, Claudette is a very interesting character. She's, like, so sexist. She thinks her daughter is a woman and thus needs a man. She says, like, marriage isn't about love. Has breast cancer. Never brought up again. You know, again, we are talking about Birdemic. It's hard not to compare her to the girl's mom in Birdemic. A much lovelier woman. A nice old lady who tells us how much she likes to go on cruises. Oh my god. All right. So, every week, we break down the romantic plotline into five points to guide conversation. Will, will you take us to point one? Okay, so point number one, we start in the titular room with Johnny and Lisa in love. Wow. Look at you. It's from Johnny. Anything for my princess. <laughs> How much was it? Denny, don't ask a question like that. Nice to see you, Denny. I'm going to take a nap. Can I go upstairs too? <laughs> Denny, I think I'm going to join him. <laughs> so, Lisa is sitting in the room, which appears to be her job. She does not leave the house. She's on the roof once. There are occasional references to, like, her doing work, and it is just not clear what that would be. It feels like she follows Toy Story rules, like she is just sitting there lifeless until someone else walks in to interact with her. Which they do a lot. Yes, unprompted, including my favorite moment is when two people who do not live there walk in and just start having sex on the couch. And people later learn about this, but no one is bothered by it. Yeah, I personally would find this to be an odd situation. But so, at the start of the movie, Johnny comes home and he presents Lisa with a gift, which is the most hideous red dress that has ever been made. so ugly. It's so ugly. It also just doesn't fit her that well. It might look better on someone who it is sized for. But it's truly terrible. And the whole thing, it, it just comes out at like 11, right out of the gate, where he's like, all right, put on the dress, sexy. And they start making out, and they go up the little spiral staircase to their bedroom, and they start having some of the weirdest on-screen sex that has ever happened. Because he is, like, up at her chest area, and a lot of people joke that he's at her belly button. It looks like he is trying to simulate sex, but 
is missed. just like pushing his penis against her belly button. Just like missed. Yeah. There's a lot of butt. A lot of his butt. I think it's funny because I think he knows that Mark has, like, Greg Sestero has a better body than him because Mark is much more chaste in this movie. Well, uh, yes, but also Greg Sestero said in The Disaster Artist that he was kind of uncomfortable shooting the sex scene, so Tommy let him keep his jeans on for it. Oh, my God. Yeah, Lisa boobs out for, like, at least 50% of the time she's on screen. Yeah. So there's this this absolutely bizarre sex scene while You Are My Rose plays. Right before it, actually, we should mention, they're, like, having what Tommy clearly believes is a sexy pillow fight. But it's it is weird. The least animated pillow fight you've ever seen. They're just kind of, like, limply flapping pillows at each other. And Denny, their ward, <laughs> bursts in <laughs> and tries to frolic on the bed with them. Who, it like, could be seen as trying to initiate a threesome or... An innocent child pillow fighting, you'll never know for sure. But it has to be one of those two. Either Denny doesn't know what sex is, or he wants to have sex with both of them. We are told that he's in love with Lisa, but it feels like this puppy love thing. Right. It makes no sense. But so they have sex, and that's that. That's point that's one. That's that. Now, point two, almost immediately after Seabig is so happy, the next day Lisa's mom comes and visits, and Lisa just says, I don't love Johnny anymore. Women, man. Women just confuse me. Uh, I have a girl. She's married. I mean, she's very attractive. It's just, it's driving me crazy. Why didn't you mention this before? I mean, is there anyone I know? No, nah, man, you don't know her. Can I meet her? I don't think so. It's, it's an awkward situation. You mean she's too old? Or you think I would take her away from you? <laughs> and Lisa's mom, Claudette, as we said, is basically like, well, Johnny's a good man. He supports you. I think of him as my son-in-law. She is so weird. But, like, basically every character gets what are clearly Tommy Wiseau's feelings coming out of their mouth, where it's like, look, this man has supported you for a period of time, and therefore you owe it to him to just stick around forever. And love him. How could you not love him? Look at him. He's young. He's handsome. He... Didn't get this promotion, but he's doing well. Because like, Lisa points that as an excuse, where she's like, well, I was happy to be with Johnny, but he didn't get this promotion. So now screw him. But she expresses this even when he is up for the promotion. But not getting the promotion becomes, like, the big excuse she gives. But then she decides to seduce Mark. She calls up Mark. I think this is, like, the first time we see him. I think so. It's the first time we see him, and he also reminds us at least four times in this phone conversation that he is Johnny's best friend. It's important to establish these sorts of things. Mark also tells us that he is busy with work stuff. We have no idea what Mark's job is, but he is sitting in a car when he takes this phone call. It's so weird. Greg Sestero said that he wrote a whole backstory for Mark that he was on the Vice Squad. And like that's why he is so suspicious of stuff. That's why he reacts so strongly when the Chris R stuff is going on. He was like really trying to make some of the threads of this movie come together. You know what I learned? The actor who played Chris R was an Olympian bobsledder. What? Yeah. He competed in the 2002 Winter Olympics representing Armenia and earned 33rd place. So at this point, he's already an Olympian. Yes. She calls up Mark and she's like, come over. And he does. And she is immediately working on seducing him in the least sexy seduction you have ever seen. It's so bad. She just does a lot of touching. And talking about Johnny. 
Right, but it's mostly, like, shoulder touching. Like, she's not, like, she is not targeting the erogenous zones. No, but it works. And then yeah. they have sex on the stairs. They have sex on a spiral staircase. And he keeps, keeps his, his pants on. <laughs> jeans on. It is quite strange. Oh um, and so that's now the status quo, where Mark, he does this, and he's like, this was a mistake. We should never do this again. We should never talk about this again. And Lisa is like, okay, wink. And then this brings us to the next, like, 50 minutes of the movie, which is just people telling Lisa she's a bad person, and Lisa seducing Mark further to Mark turning against Johnny. You think girls like to cheat like guys do? What makes you say that? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just... I'm just thinking. I don't have to worry about that because Lisa's loyal to me. Yeah, man, you never know. People are very strange these days. I used to know a girl. She had a dozen guys. One of them found out about it, beat her up so bad she ended up in a hospital on Guerrero Street. <laughs> what a story, Mark. Yeah, you can say that again. I'm so happy I have you as my best friend, and I love Lisa so much. Yeah, man. Yeah, you are very lucky. So, like, different characters will come in and be like, so, Lisa, I heard that you're cheating on Johnny. In part because she tells one of her friends. The one who has sex in her apartment. Right. I think her name is, like, Danielle? Yeah, or Natalie. Who's to say? Michelle. Michelle, okay. I feel like Michelle and Natalie, or... What did you say? I said Danielle. And Natalie together kind of makes Michelle. Yeah. So she tells Michelle that she's cheating on Johnny. Johnny overhears this. And so he buys like an honest to God tape recorder. That he plugs into his phone. So that he can record her phone calls. But only phone calls. So when she continues to meet Mark through other ways, he doesn't know about it. She and Johnny do have sex again after he fails to get the promotion. Yeah, this is also where we get some other highlights, such as them getting fitted for their wedding tuxes and playing football. Yeah, playing football in tuxes in a scene that is unexplained and unmentioned. We get the Chris R. thing on the roof, Lisa accusing him of hitting her. I did yeah, not. Which I, I guess is like she's trying to come up with more excuses for why she should leave Johnny. To like why people should support her in leaving Johnny. Yeah. But it's all leading up to Johnny's surprise party. We should also mention in here that uh, Peter shows up. And Peter is one of the many people who, he's he's a psychologist, so he tries to take the rational attack, like, talking to both Johnny and Lisa about, like, here's why, you know, you should make this relationship work in a healthy way. But Lisa refuses to listen because she's unreasonable because she's a woman. Yeah, uh, Johnny, mm, Tommy hates women. And Johnny, like, won't hear any of this. Like, he won't hear people warning him about Lisa because he's like, no, Lisa's my girl. She's so sexy. <sighs> wow. But point four of the surprise party is where we also get to meet Steven, who is Peter, part two. Yes. So Lisa throws Johnny a surprise birthday party. Everyone goes outside and she makes out with Mark at the party. What are you doing? None of your business. You're my future wife. What are you doing, Lisa? Leave her alone, man. She doesn't want to talk to you. Since when do you give me orders? Has Lisa changed her mind about you? Huh. Wake up, man. What planet are you on? I think you should leave right now, Mark. Don't spoil it. We were just having fun. Don't worry about it, man. Right? Don't touch me, motherfucker. Get out. Stop it! Stop leave it! Leave girl alone. You two are acting like children. Son of a bitch. You're gonna ruin the party. To keep your girl satisfied, she will come to me. Get out of my house. Yeah, so like, 
some people like uh, Michelle and Steven have been putting pressure on her. Like, you've got to put up or shut up on this. Like, you can't keep cheating on Johnny. Either stay with him or don't. Meanwhile, she spends the whole time like flaunting her flirtation with Mark. Mark is telling her to stop, but is also going with it. Because he is now in love with Lisa and opposed to Johnny. Because you can't trust anyone. Can you really trust anyone? No. That's the answer this movie posits. Yeah. So the party's a disaster. And I guess that's that. We're at point five. Yeah. So uh, Tommy or Johnny. A lot happens in this movie, but a lot of it is disconnected from everything else that happens. And it's hard to explain. But yeah. So after the party, Johnny is found out about Lisa and Mark. Because... Lisa calls Mark on the phone and is like, I can't believe that I'm still with him. I find him disgusting. Like, let's go and be together. And she's packing her bag. And so Johnny then comes out of the bathroom where he was hiding. And instead of just being like, I clearly heard her planning to leave and cheat. He's like, ah, I gotta listen to the tape recording. You little tramp. How could you do this to me? I gave you seven years of my life. And you betray me. We see what else we have in this state. No. Stop. You little prick. I put up with you for seven years. You think you're an angel. You're just like everybody. I treat you like a princess. And you stab me in the back. I love you and I did anything for you to just please you. And now you betray me. How could you love it? But that's how he finds out that Mark is the one who is she is cheating on him with. And this tears him apart. This tears him apart. This is where he then grabs a gun and kills himself in front of Lisa and Mark. No, Mark's not there. They just discover him immediately after. Right. Denny and Lisa discover him first. And then Mark shows up and Mark immediately turns on Lisa. Basically, is like, you're the reason he's dead. Don't touch me. Don't get anywhere near me. And then basically, Denny's like, leave us alone. And has his last moment with Johnny. Weird movie. Weird movie. Is it believable? Uh, okay, so let's talk through the romance list. So Johnny and Lisa are future husband and wife. Yes. They like to have sex. Johnny appears to be the main provider. Lisa is losing interest with him, starts cheating with his friend, decides she wants to get out, but like takes a while to actually do it. Eventually, he finds out and kills himself. That together... Kind of believable. However, none of these people behave like human beings. The execution uh, diminishes this down quite significantly. Right. Um, On one of the posters for the movie, it said that the room was a film with the passion of Tennessee Williams, with Tennessee misspelled, of course. And I do think there is something to the high melodrama of it that is, you know, glass menagerie-esque. It's a play. It was originally written as a play. Yeah. However, we I cannot call this movie believable. No. So every week we rate a movie on a scale of 1 to 10, what would you give The Room? My inclination is like a 5, because I think that the, the beats of the story are uh-huh. plausible. However, nothing in the execution is. I was going to go like a 4. I mean, I, I will respect you if you do that. Yeah. Just as a, as a point of comparison. Yes. Um, we each gave Birdemic a 2. I think the romantic plotline of this movie makes more sense than Birdemic. I agree with you. So yeah, I'm comfortable with a four. Uh, do you think Lisa or Johnny is dateable? No to either. They are not humans. And they're also both bad not humans. Right. We know Lisa and Johnny will not stay together because Johnny is dead. 
And Lisa and Mark will not stay together because she killed Johnny. Yes. If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? Now, this is a thinker because They're all everyone bad. is a maniac. Um, My inclination, I got to say, is Michelle. Because I think Michelle was willing to speak important truths to Lisa. She was the one willing to say, like, hey, I don't know that you should break up with Johnny. But if you're going to, you have to do it. Like, don't be a jerk. Especially don't be a jerk to him at his party. And Look, the weirdest thing she does is go into Lisa and Johnny's apartment to have sex in the middle of the day. But the fact that Lisa and Johnny don't react negatively to that suggests that this has been established as a thing that's okay to do. So we can't really hold it against Michelle. Yeah, that's fair. I She's a solid choice. I was just going to say the flower shop lady. Okay, that's fine. Uh, now, Will, should this movie be adapted into a musical? Here's the issue. The Room has been adapted into different things. I mentioned there was a Flash game in, like, 2010. I don't think you can adapt The Room for live performance. And the reason is, what makes it so special is the absolute strangeness of the performances, of the dialogue, of the filmmaking. Like, it's watching every moment of screen time and thinking, like, Tommy thought this was the best option. Yeah. And he was perfectly willing to, like, do lots of takes to reshoot stuff like he could have had it differently and this is what he wanted and once you put it on stage as a play or as a musical you're having performers mimicking that it, it's the it's the sharknado to sharknado 2 issue when you're making it bad on purpose it no longer has that special magic it's not fun so i don't think this should be adapted to any kind of live performance no i think a flash game is probably exactly where it should have gone uh all right we finally did it 230 episodes in the can, we hit the room. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Of course, yeah. Like I said, maybe don't watch the whole movie, but watch like the first 30, 45 minutes. Next week, we will be covering a very classic romantic comedy, The Wedding Singer. I really don't know much about it beyond that. I have never seen it. I know it's Adam Sandler in his late 90s run, and it'll be uh, an interesting one to check out. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, Will, last question. What's the best piece of dating advice we got from The Room? Phone calls. Underrated. As a way of asking people out, finding out secrets, talking to people. I feel like we've gotten away from phone calls, but they're good. I guess my advice, the only thing we see that works is uh, touching shoulders. And to be clear, that's touching shoulders with your hand, not like bumping into somebody. Grazing someone's shoulder. The shoulder is an unexplored erogenous zone. All right. Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.